Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk to two people, Dr. Timothy Caulfield and Dr. Cora Constantinescu, both of them working to dispel some of the myths around vaccination and get people the answers that they are seeking. Some great news for the Canadian beef industry. The BSE tag that has been hanging over them since 2003 is finally gone. The way out of this pandemic is vaccines. That's the message we've been given from every health authority on earth for months now. Here in Alberta, reopening has been directly tied to the number of people who get vaccinated. You don't hit 70%, we don't lift the restrictions. Premier made it very clear over the last several days. The science is clear. The vaccines work. They save lives. They protect our health care system. They are uh, the answer to the problem of controlling the virus without using the blunt and and sometimes destructive instrument of public health restrictions. So you can tell he's frustrated. A lot of people are frustrated, I think, despite an overwhelming amount of science and data-backed information around these vaccines, the billions of dollars, the years of research, on and on and on. um, Misinformation has tipped the scales for a lot of people out there, and that could mean big consequences for all of us. Dr. Timothy Caulfield joins us now. Dr. Caulfield is a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. And for some reason, and I want to ask you about this, Doc, you've dedicated your life to combating misinformation. Uh, a never-ending supply of work for you, but at the same time, it's a tough it's a tough road. I mean, it's really hard to change minds, isn't it? It's been a slog, and this this year has just been... It's been bonkers. You know, I've been studying misinformation really for decades, and this, this year is just, I've never seen anything like it. No. Um, and it is, it is hard to change the minds of those hardcore deniers. But, Shay, I'm, I'm optimistic, and research backs me up that that movable middle, we can make we can make a difference. Right. That's the thing that we're talking about. I mean, we all accept and understand there are some people who are just not going to get vaccinated, no matter what anybody tells them. And that's okay. But there is that group in the middle that you mentioned. And, you know, the premier is talking, but he's giving out the facts, 2.2 million doses, only a few hundred adverse effects, most of them extremely mild. Obviously, he realizes that that herd immunity, the way out of this, is possibly threatened by that movable middle, right? They need to be moved in the right direction if his plan is going to work. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And, and to be honest with you, Shay, I kind of like the that he's tied uh, it's, uh, the opening up to, to, to the vaccines. It's almost like a, a, an incentive for the entire, <laughs> entire province. But research tells us, if you look at what's happening in the United States, they're already starting to bump up against that, you know, that hesitancy hurdle, as I like to call it. I think it's a hurdle because we can get over it. You know, and those who are complacent, you know, we're starting to see the uptake slow down as we get past 65, you know, get nudged to yeah. 70%. So it's really going to matter. This is very, very important. You know, you mentioned the United States, and I, this is really fascinating to me because you're right. They ran into um, a bit of a, a ceiling there, and things really started to slow down, and they got very concerned. So New Jersey said, hey, come get vaccinated. We'll give you a beer. A bunch of different states said, hey, if you come get vaccinated, uh, you'll be entered into a lottery. We'll give you a million dollars. And when the CDC came out and said, hey, if you're vaccinated, you can take off your mask, they saw a doubling in traffic to the vaccine website at the CDC, people who are now interested in getting vaccinated. So that tells me that there's a lot of people out there, Doc, that maybe they're not even opposed in the least. They just don't care. And they need some sort of motivation and incentive. Do I have that right? 
Yeah, you're exactly right about that. You know, it's the complacent group. Everyone, you know, we have to always be careful not to overgeneralize why individuals aren't getting vaccinated or hesitating to get vaccinated. There could be access issues. There could be needle fear, which is, you know, a real thing and, and a, a significant percentage of the population. But it's that complacent group that perhaps incentives might might work. You know, West Virginia paid $100, I believe it was, yeah. to get if people got, got vaccinated and they saw a, a, an uptake in interest. So, um, you know, I think those incentives can work and they have to be framed properly you want to make sure you're incentivizing the right thing you know you want to make sure you're you know incentivizing sort of a pro-social behavior uh, but for that group for those individuals that are just a little bit complacent that is one strategy that we should look to um and and we're just getting texts as we're talking you know like the premier has said we will not make vaccines mandatory there's a lot of people who as soon as he said that but then he talked about if we don't get to 70 percent this doesn't happen. Um, they're saying, well, that makes it mandatory. If you're telling me I can't travel unless I'm vaccinated, that's mandatory. It's not fair. So for some people, I think it's a cause to double down. Um, but obviously, he's using more of a stick than a carrot in some ways, right? You know, the mandatory thing is, we have to be careful, because you know, and we're seeing this in the text already, apparently. Right? Oh, yes. you know, how, oh, do you yeah. define, how do you define mandatory? What does that, what does that really mean? You know, I, th- I think the hardcore mandatory idea, you know, the idea that, that, that you have to get a vaccine in order to, to work and, or to go to school, you know, I think that should be an instrument of last resort. I really do think we should focus right now on, on more of the positive things, you know, the incentives, the messaging, yeah. the, the, uh, the cohort effect, you know, uh, you know, getting all your neighbors to do it and, and to talk about it. Let's focus on that. Let's make this a, a positive thing that Alberta's, Albertans can do to get out of the, the pandemic. You know, like you say, there's that movable middle. Um, uh, we've seen reports that, you know, Russia is trying to pay influencers to, you know, discredit the vaccine. We know now that most of the misinformation has come from just 12 people on Facebook. It all sources back to 12 people. Um, it is so pervasive, though. What is the best approach if you have somebody in your life that you know um, has questions, legitimate questions and concerns because of this misinformation? How do you counter it? Because it seems to me it's like, almost like beating your head against the wall sometimes. The good news is research tells us that, you know, debunking or counting, countering misinformation does work. Okay. So we, we need to do this on social media. We need to counter the information, misinformation in a positive way, in a way where the content is shareable, you know, use credible information. We have our hashtag science up first initiative that's got great content that everyone can, can share. But when you're, when you're talking to a friend, to a neighbor, to a relative, you know, remember to listen because not everyone's hesitant the same way. Remember to be patient. It's so rare when someone changes their mind, right? Shay, does everyone yeah. go, you know, now that you mention it, you know, you're right. That rarely happens, right? What you want to do is you want to give them a path towards credible information. Uh, and, and the other thing you need to do is you need to pick your battles because it's very hard to change uh, the mind of an individual that is a hor- hardcore denier. This has become part of who they are, part of their ideology, part of their personal brand. Very difficult to change that individual's mind. But what you can do is make sure that their rhetoric doesn't impact people around them. And I think that's an important distinction to make because I know for a lot of people out there, you don't even want to listen. You don't even want to entertain that discussion, right? As soon as somebody says, yeah, I don't know about the vaccine, the insults insults start to fly. And I think that's unfair because there are people, like we just got a text that says, I'm part of the hesitant group. I hear you. I totally get what you're saying. However, in my case, it's a gut instinct to just hold off on this. It's a scary movie to me. 
This person isn't saying I'm anti-vaccine, I hate vaccines, and Bill Gates is trying to control me. They're saying, I have some concerns and I have some questions. And if you start yelling and screaming at them about, you know, you're an idiot, you're a fool, you don't know what you're talking about, you're only going to make matters worse, right? Uh, so true. And I think this is a great example. You know, let's listen. Can we provide this individual with credible information that will nudge them towards getting getting the vaccine? And, and, and if you just yell at them, you know, you polarize the discourse absolutely immediately. And, and again, I, research tells us we can make a difference with credible information. And we're seeing that on, on, a, on a population level. You know, the, we should have said this off the top. You know, the good news is interest in vaccines is increasing. Mm-hmm. The number of individuals that are, you know, are in that wait and see category are, you know, that's decreasing. And the amount of individuals that are the hardcore deniers, you know, they're staying relatively, relatively flat. So that's, you know, good news. That means the stuff that we're talking about right now, Shay, it works. Like, okay. Lisa says, how about if you debunk the fact that this is only an experimental vaccine and it's not FDA approved? I mean, I get that all the time, too, right? I mean, it's not experimental. These vaccines have been around working on for more than 10 years. FDA approved it for emergency use and is working on... I mean, these are the kind of arguments that you hear, and they seem to outweigh the actual factual evidence. Well, that's a really good example, because because that language, right, that language has emanated from the hardcore deniers. That totally. language has emanated from the anti-vaxxers, right, and been adopted by the movable middle. And, and, and unfortunately, that really shows how powerful, you know, the, the messaging, you know, from those hardcore deniers can have an impact on public discourse. It's a really good example of it because it sounds sensible, right? It sounds it logical. And the reality, as you've said, you said off the top, and we can repeat it now, we have an incredible amount of really robust science that has been evaluated independently around the world. I mean, the, the, the universe should be celebrating these, the science. This is like a moon landing, as I always like to say. It's really incredible science. So uh, constantly remind people of that and talk about the independent evaluations that's happened by regulators around the world. And when they talk about this experimental approval, that's really we're talking about a regulatory process here, the labeling of a regulatory process, not that these things are you know, unproven. And think of the millions of data points that we have now because you know, so many, hundreds of millions of people have now received these vaccines. Hundreds of millions, yeah. And there are adverse effects. You can't say that you know it's 100% risk-free, but when you just put the equation in in terms of, well, this is the risk of not getting it versus this is the risk of getting it. It's night and day. They're not even remotely close. Not even remotely close. And human beings are just really bad at evaluating risk. You are. <laughs> I am. We all are. You know, let's face it, right? We all are. And, and, but you're absolutely right. The, the, calcul- the risk-benefit calculus is, you know, it's, it doesn't even compare. And, and, Shay, that doesn't even include factoring in the, the idea that the reason that you're getting the vaccine is really for your community, right? It's not yeah, even yeah. for you. It's not even for your family. You're really, really doing it for your community, for, for all Albertans. Doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much, Shay. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Timothy Caulfield, who is um, involved in this misinformation atmosphere and trying to, uh, to deal with it for a long, long time. Now that the 12 to 18 is eligible to be vaccinated, they have some questions. They have some you know, some thoughts. They want some answers to some of the things that affect them and what they're hearing about it. And now there's a really neat idea that's taking place. It's a virtual vaccine confidence clinic 
for kids in Calgary. Now, we're going to chat with Dr. Cora Constantinescu about this. She's a pediatric infectious disease doctor at the University of Calgary involved with this program. Doc, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. I appreciate it. Hi, Shay. Good morning. Now, sounds like a wonderful idea. Just give us the, the, the lay of the land. What is a virtual vaccine confidence clinic? How does it work? Well, you know, you did a fantastic job of describing exactly who this clinic is for. So what is, this clinic is there to support people as they're making this vaccination decision for mm-hmm. their kids and also to support teenagers as they're making this vaccination decision for themselves. And um, we know that many people have a really trusted relationship with their family doctor, and we definitely want to support that. That's a really, you know, we want people to go to their family doctors with questions and concerns. But for those people who may want a bit more of a specialized or a nuanced kind of conversation, and the family doctor feels that um, that particular patient needs just a bit more information or uh, maybe more um, specific information, then this clinic is for them. And um, it's all done via, so we we don't, uh, at the Vaccine Agency Clinic, the Children's Hospital and the University, we're only providing the um, education and the the material support for them in terms of keeping these providers up to date with information. But all the work is done by our community partners, such as virtual kids and some community pediatricians who have stepped forward saying they're ready to help and support parents when they make this decision. And... What kind of things are we, I mean, when we, because like I hear from the listeners who say, hey, let's, you know, I have some questions, I have some concerns, you know, and, and they're, they're legitimate, Doc. I mean, I'm, I'm not here to say that those questions and those concerns shouldn't be asked and addressed, but they need to be addressed by, by doctors, right? So you're a great source for this information. What kind of things are people concerned about? What kind of questions are coming to you? Yeah, you know, you're putting it in just the perfect way. So this is not about persuading or coercion or convincing anybody to do anything. It's about supporting people when they're making this decision. Because as you put forth so well, people have very legitimate concerns and questions. And what we see is that most of the concerns, especially from parents, come around safety. Is this a safe vaccine for my child? Right. And some parents wonder, is this you know, how is this vaccine going to affect my kid? And the largest number of people, however, who need this kind of resource are those people who feel that maybe there's something different in my child's history or my family history. And how is this vaccine decision, how can it be personalized to our family and our situation? And that's usually where most people are coming from. You know, they may say, my kid has had this condition in the past. How is this? vaccine going to potentially affect that? How is it going to give them the benefits of having it? Um, So it's usually a very personalized type of request that people come in with. And first of all, I applaud them for seeking out answers to the questions and concerns that they have and going about and trying to get the information. Um, Do you find that after you've had the discussion, you can show them and, and, and reassure them and make them feel better about the decision? You know, so we've just launched this particular um, uh, program last week, so we don't have a lot of information on how well it's working. But what I can tell you is that at the Children's Hospital, we've been running the vaccine hesitancy clinic. So this is not just around COVID-19 vaccines, but around all childhood vaccines. We've been running it for a number of years. Yeah. And we always come at it from this perspective of saying, you know, these people who are coming in to seek advice are trying to make the best decision they can for their kids. And we want to show them that this is a collaborative thing. We're supporting them on that, making this decision. 
And usually we've had really good success, not just in uptake. So we do see people go ahead and, and have a vaccine after they have this conversation, but also in trust, um, trusting their healthcare provider, trusting the system, seeing that, you know, uh, <laughs> there, is, there isn't judgment there. We're mm-hmm. just trying to support them. And I think that's success, too, because that's going to affect their perception of other vaccines, of other medical interventions as well for their kid in the future. Um, You know, one of the questions that I often get, and you know what, on the surface, it seems to make sense. People are saying, we know that kids don't get sick from this uh, to the same extent that older people do. Why would I go and put this vaccine into my child when I know that even if they got sick, they would probably be fine? Oh, on the surface, it, that that kind of makes sense. So what would you tell somebody in that instance where, well, why would I vaccinate my kid, my 12-year-old? Even if they got it, we were told that they're not going to get that ill. You know, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician and a mom, so I've had to think of this decision both professionally and personally. I have three kids myself. And it's true that this virus has spared children compared to adults, but it's not that it's completely safe or that all kids are doing well. For example, in the U.S., Two times more children have died of COVID in the same um, time frame as would have died of influenza in a strong influenza season. So it's not benign. Uh, we do see kids admitted to ICU, admitted, admitted to hospital. We see kids having multi-system inflammation post this disease. So it's not that all kids are all perfectly fine. And, you know, I'm an infectious disease specialist. So we do see these more um, the hospitalized cases that... Most parents don't necessarily hear about or know about. So there is that benefit of personal protection. And then my biggest thing about this is that our kids have lost so much over the last year. Right. We're seeing our teens affected so badly in terms of mental health, socialization, education. And this vaccine, they can contribute to that community protection and bring us all back to as much of a normal as they can. And when you ask teens, which is interesting about why they're, you know, rushing forth to get it, because we've seen that almost more than 30% of our teens have actually gone ahead and had this vaccine. That's their big reason. They're saying, I just want to go back to having in-person learning, to seeing my friends, doing all these things that kids are supposed to be doing. I'm sure I'll, uh, one more question and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, and it's one that I get all the time and I'm sure it's one you get all the time. What about long-term effects? We don't know. These are new vaccines. What about long-term effects? You know, I think it's natural for people to think that as a parent, we we think of long-term effects all the time, you know, screen time, what kind of food our kids eat. Yeah. So it's very normal and natural for parents to come at this question. Um, a few things on that. First, every time people have looked at long-term effects, so anything that comes up after six weeks after a vaccine, They've never found an association in previous vaccines. And man, we've looked really hard. You know, think of autism and MMR. Every time we've looked, there hasn't been an association. So we don't have a history of long-term effects after that six-week period of association. And um, and also, so far, when we look at long-term effects of this vaccine in older teenagers, like 16 and 17-year-olds, we have over 3 million of those having been immunized in the U.S. Again, we haven't seen any long-term effects past that six to eight week mark after the vaccine. But what we do know is that COVID, the disease, long-term effects are significant. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to recognize them in kids as well in terms of long COVID. And that to me is a real worry and fear to think that my kid could have a pretty mild disease and yet have long-term debilitating 
health and mental health issues associated with it. So again, you have to put it all into perspective. No real evidence so far that we have any long-term effects of previous vaccines or COVID, but we sure have long-term effects of the disease. Excellent information, doctor. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Really nice talking to you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks very much. That is Dr. Cora Constantinescu, who is a pediatric infectious disease doctor at the University of Calgary, and one of a group of doctors who has put together this new vaccine hesitancy clinic. Uh, If you would like to get involved and if you would like to check it out, um, they do have a website. I'm just trying to find out what it is here. Okay, I'll get that for you. Uh, The virtual clinic, I believe it's called virtual kids. Yeah, that's it. Virtualkids.ca. If you want more information, you can check it out there. Some really, really good news for our province, particularly, but the entire country yesterday. You remember the mad cow situation? We're going back a ways here. We're going back to 2003 when we had the mad cow outbreak, and it caused huge, huge problems for the cattle industry. Massive, massive problems. Um, It sort of faded out of the headlines, obviously, over the last 18 years, but it has continued to cause problems within the industry right up until yesterday. Finally, yesterday, the Paris-based World Organization for Animal Health voted to approve Canada's bid to be given the negligible risk designation. That is the best category you can be in. It requires uh, proof of extensive control and surveillance measures, and it has to be 11 years after the birth of the last infected animal. Basically, what it means is all the restrictions and all the concerns around Canadian beef have been lifted with regards to BSE. Joining us now to talk more about this is Bob Lowe, who is president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jay. You must be uh, very, very relieved that long last this designation has been granted to our country. Yeah, uh, you said 18 years, and as one guy said, it's 18 years and seven days, but who's counting? <laughs> um, it's uh, this is, it's a great piece of news. It puts us back on par with, with the world, and in particular, our biggest trading partner, the U.S. Now, when we talk about the implications of the designation that happened in 2003 and everything that's happened since then, it's as... I mean, the, the impact on your industry is absolutely enormous, right? And it went on for years. Yeah. Um, you know, the numbers, if you wanted to go to the numbers, we estimated co- the actual cash cost was over $5 billion. Yeah, That's in the first three years. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost 26,000 producers and about 2 million acres of grassland got converted to other uses. But that's part of the cost. The You know, the biggest cost that's, that can't be quantified is the cost to the the mental health of beef producers. Right, yeah. You know, just this thing hanging over their head for forever, the just the social factor of fabric of rural Canada. Now, when that designation first came in in 2003, basically what it meant is you were not allowed to ship beef out of the country at all, right? It was bas- You were relying entirely on the domestic market? Yeah. Uh, cattle for a little while in parts of the country were worth zero. When we... You know, we export 50% of our production. Yep. So all of a sudden, that's not, can't be exported. What do you do with it? And it's not, you know, beef doesn't have a shelf life. It's It's right, got to yeah. be consumed, and, and you've got to, we've got to really take our hats off to the Canadian public because we ate our way out of it. 
uh, beef consumption in Canada actually went up, which is the only time that that's ever happened in a BSE event in the world. Wow. So we got to thank the, the Canadian public. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've sort of moved through different steps to get to the designation yesterday. I think it was 2007. Things got a bit better, then a little bit better again in 2013. So have things slowly but surely been improving for the cattle industry because of this BSE situation in particular as you've moved through these different phases? Yeah, it's it's helped us with our with our trade for sure. Um, you know, there's, there's rules around BSE. It's, it's funny, there's been two... I think the number there's been two confirmed atypical BSE cases in the world in the last five years. So the rules, the rules around BSE have worked. We've basically eliminated it from the global cattle population. Uh, now, for us to get to the negligible risk status, you know, we, we've we've opened up countries, we've traded with countries, but we've always had this hanging over our head, and it's yeah. always been a cost. That should all go away now. It's not going to be instant because now we've prepared a list of countries around the world that we have to go to individually. Okay, we're now at, at the best status. We need you to change some rules here, but right. it's their rules, not ours. So. Yeah, and you mentioned the United States earlier and the fact that uh, this is a, is a big, big issue for them and obviously uh, something that you've been, you know, butting up against for years now, and this may really improve that. What is the relationship in terms of uh, the beef industry in the United States and in Canada, and why has this been a barrier? Uh, well, it's, it's one of the big things is our specified risk material at the plants. Okay. In Canada, we're required, because of our previous status, we're required, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 kilograms of product, and that gets removed and incinerated. Whereas when you get to negligible risk status, where we are now, that rule, that drops to half a kilogram. So that's, in the processing plants, that's a that's a big number. We're estimating it's, as compared to the U.S., where they remove half, they're on what's called the short list, we're on the long list. It's about $35 million a year. Wow, okay. So that's one thing. Um Feeder cattle that we send across the line have have to be identified with a CAN brand or tattoo, which is an extra cost. And you know, when you talk to producers that send feeder cattle down there, for one reason or another, they also get discriminated against because they've got that CAN brand across their ribs. That should go away. Okay. But that's an American law, so we've got to. They have to do that. We can't do it. Yeah. What's the reception been like in the United States? I know that, you know, uh, country of origin labeling, all these sorts of things have sort of been bones of contention uh, between the two countries for some time. Are you making any progress on any of these fronts? Uh, well, it's, we're, we're aware of it, and country of origin labeling is is a big one. Yeah. And we're watching what's happening, and there's, yeah, it's since the, since the new election down there and the new the new leadership it's coming up a lot more. Um, portions of the United States are really pushing hard. Right. Portions of the U.S. cattle industry are pushing really hard to get mandatory country of origin labeling down there. Some people are, are pushing against it. We're, we're siding with NCBA in, in uh, you know, it doesn't work. 
it's it's an added cost to everybody in the U.S. It's not going to save anybody anything, but it's it's political. So yeah, we're watching it very carefully, and we'll do everything we can to yeah. bring some sense into the conversation. But overall, some really good news yesterday. Something you've waited so long for, <laughs> and uh, something positive to build off, I guess, eh? Yeah, it's it's we basically lost a generation with yep. this hanging over our heads, and that's as of yesterday, it's gone. Fantastic. So that's a big deal. It sure is. It's a huge deal. And like you say, it'll take some time to build back, but uh, at least you got a place to start from. So great yep. news. Uh, thanks very much, Bob. Yep. Thank you, Shay. That is Bob Lowe, who is the president of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. And I remember covering that BSE outbreak and what a big, big deal it was back in 2003. And then, like I say, it just sort of went away. We didn't talk about it much anymore. It just sort of faded off. Uh, I didn't realize that the the ripple effects of that designation back in 2003 were still being felt in 2021. And it's taken this long to finally get Canada back on a level footing where we don't have that, as Bob said, hanging over our heads in terms of export. And, you know, fully half of the cattle produced in this country is exported. So this is a major, major advancement for the Canadian uh, cattle industry and some really good news. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.